and turn to John chapter 20. Well, it is Easter Sunday, a day dominated by chocolate and jelly beans, brightly colored eggs, and an overly commercialized bunny. I'm not bitter about that, obviously. Um, But you're here at a church service, which tells me something about you. You're here at a church service. You know that we aren't here to talk about the Easter bunny or have an Easter egg hunt as fun as that would be. We are here to reflect on what God, the Bible, and millions of Christians over the last two millennia have claimed are the most important events in human history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The claim of Christianity is that what happened in Jerusalem to one man some 2,000 years ago is immediately relevant and applicable to you and I today. The death and resurrection of Jesus, which we have been singing about and praying about and reading about this morning, the death and resurrection of Christ requires a response from each of us here. Do I believe that he died and rose again? If he did, if that's true, then I can't ignore him. I can't ignore him. I must make sense of this man who died and then came back to life. I must uncover what this means for me and for everybody else. The passage that we're about to read is one of the most famous post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. It's the story of Doubting Thomas. One man who walked closely with Jesus when he was on the earth, yet struggled to believe that Jesus had really been raised from the dead like he said he would. Thomas, Thomas doubted the resurrection. And I wonder if in this room today, Thomas wouldn't be alone. Thomas doubted the resurrection, and Jesus, with his characteristic wisdom and grace, responded to Thomas's doubts. Let's find out what he did. Read in our Bibles, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, all the way through verse 31. I will read and then pray. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The very words of God, please join me in a brief prayer for understanding. Lord, we ask you now to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see you in all of your crucified and risen splendor and may confess with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Give us this morning, this Easter morning, the gift of faith in your Son which is able to provide for us a life that will never end. Give us again this faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For Christmas, I was gifted a book I'd put on my wish list called The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And if you're morbidly introspective like I am, you will understand why a book by that title was so interesting to me. The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. The author, John Koenig, describes the book like this. The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows is a compendium of new words for emotions. Its mission, he writes, is to shine a light on the fundamental strangeness of being a human being. All the aches, demons, vibes, joys, and urges that are humming in the background of everyday life. He then provides some examples of these new words from his dictionary. Here are a few of them. Canopsia, the atmosphere of a place that is usually bustling with people, but is now abandoned and quiet. Or how about devu, the awareness that this moment will become a memory. Well, that's an obscure sorrow. <laughs> Enumment, the bitter sweetness of having arrived here in the future, seeing how things turn out, but unable to tell your past self. <laughs> if you've never felt that before, now you have. Well... <laughs> Welcome to the land of morbid introspection. <laughs> Tucked deep in this book is a longer explanation for a phrase John coined. Notice Tollins. Here's how he describes it. There are times when you look up and realize that the plot of your life doesn't make sense to you anymore. You thought you were following the arc of the story, but you keep finding yourself immersed in passages you don't understand. You look around and wonder, what kind of story is this? Is your everyday life part of the origin story of something truly epic? Are you a character in a romance? A tragedy? A travelogue? Or just another cautionary tale? Notice Tollins, I don't know where that phrase comes from, 
is an obscure sorrow that we can assume the disciple Thomas was feeling on the evening of Good Friday, all day Saturday, and into Sunday when we meet him here in John chapter funny, uh, John chapter funny, John chapter 20. <laughs> Not funny. Uh, Thomas had followed Jesus for three years, believing him to be the long-awaited Messiah. He had pinned his hopes and dreams on Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ had just been pinned to a Roman cross where Thomas's hopes and dreams in him died with the crucified Christ. Not the end that Thomas had in mind for his Savior and Lord. Thomas felt that he had completely misunderstood the arc of his personal story. His life was supposed to be part of something epic, right? But now it's all come to nothing. What's left? What does Thomas have? Doubt. It's a bit cruel that he's known as Doubting Thomas, especially for us, because we've read the passage and we know what happens. <laughs> but it is fair, because when we meet him, he is a man filled with doubt. Doubt is a not-so-obscure sorrow that we all live with. Doubt, doubt is everywhere. It's like, it's like Teslas in Orange County. They're everywhere. <laughs> doubt is everywhere. We doubt regularly. We doubt that our efforts at home or at work will yield the results we hope for. We doubt that the people we look up to will still accept us when they find out that we did this or that or that we think this or that. We doubt that our political candidates or causes will win out in the end. For those here who aren't Christians, you may doubt the religious claims of the many religions scattered across the globe. You may doubt the claims about Jesus' death and resurrection that we have been proclaiming this morning. Like for the Christians here, our danger is that we don't often give our doubts enough attention. We're believers, right? We're supposed to believe. We can't entertain doubts about God or Jesus or the Bible. It is easy to function with that assumption. Here's where a pastor and author, Tim Keller, offers a helpful corrective. He writes, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith, he writes, can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her doubts. Believers writes, should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts. Easter is for doubters. Easter is for doubters. Easter is for skeptics and cynics. In Thomas, we find a man forced to wrestle with doubts, and we find a Savior, Jesus Christ, ready and willing to answer him. And Jesus is willing to to do the same for us as we face our own doubts this morning. Let me walk you through this passage under four headings as we study this true story of Thomas and Jesus. Four points, four headings. I'm going to give them to you as we go. Heading number one, our stubborn 
doubts, our stubborn doubts. After being raised from the dead in the early hours of Sunday morning, Jesus first appeared to the first person who came to his tomb, Mary Magdalene. After recognizing him, she becomes the first witness to his resurrection. She goes back to the rest of the disciples, and in verse 18 of John chapter 20, she told them, I have seen the Lord. That was in the morning. Then most of the day goes by before Jesus appears to the rest of the disciples. For most of Easter Sunday, the rest of the disciples only have the report of Mary. And then in verse 19 of John chapter 20, it says they had locked themselves in a room for fear that those who killed Jesus were coming for them. Yet even with the doors locked, the risen Jesus came and stood among them. He showed them the wounds on his body. He commissions them to be his messengers. Now, of the original 12 disciples, only 10 are there. Judas, who betrayed him, was not there. And we find, verse 24, the verse, first verse of our passage, that for some unknown reason, Thomas was not there either, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He's going to get a target pickup order or something? He's running an errand? Taking a walk to clear his head? We don't know. But he missed this first meeting with the risen Christ an appointment you don't want to miss. Oh. As soon as he arrives back, Jesus is already gone. And the rest of the disciples tell him, verse 25, sounds a lot like what Mary said, but now it's plural. We have seen the Lord. And then something strange happens. Thomas doesn't believe them. Why wouldn't he believe them? He had seen Jesus do miracles. He had heard Jesus' predictions about how he would die, but on the third day rise. He knew these guys, the other disciples. He'd been best friends with them for the past few years. Well, maybe that was the problem. He knew these knuckleheads, so he didn't trust them. They'd pulled one too many pranks on him, I guess. Why didn't he believe them? This is surprising. Even after less than 36 hours since Jesus had died, doubt had already sunk its talons deep into Thomas's mind and heart. We could just hear his inner monologue, right? My hope in Jesus was misplaced. This was all a sham. There have been many other so-called messiahs who turned out to be frauds, and there had been. Many other so-called messiahs who turned out to be frauds and I got suckered in just like everybody else. His response to the disciples reveals the depth of his doubt and despair. He demands evidence. Verse 25, unless I see, you can hear him pounding on his pulpit, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What a morbid request. Those last four words feel so final. I will never believe. His heart by now, it's just a couple days after Jesus died, his heart is as hard as iron. From strong believer, 
just a couple days before, strong believer to committed skeptic in a very short period of time. Doubt doesn't need much time. Doesn't need much time. And once it takes root, it can be very hard to uproot. Hence the phrase, stubborn doubts. Doubts can be very stubborn. And the real danger about doubt is that it doesn't stay as doubt. Doubt leads to despair and despondency. It leads to hopelessness and purposelessness. Doubt leads to depression. That, that is why it can't be ignored. The doubts themselves aren't the problem. It's what they lead to. That's the real danger. If doubts are less unaddressed, if they're left unaddressed, never acknowledged or answered, if we let our doubts lead us, they will lead us down a very dark path. And that is why they must be brought out into the light. Look, Thomas is not painted here in this passage as a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination. Not everything about him is worthy of emulation, but there is one thing here at these first couple verses that we can appreciate about the disciple Thomas. He's honest. (laughs) He's not fake. He's no pretender. He's honest about what he thinks and feels and believes and needs. We can respect him for that and appreciate that and learn from that because we too should be honest with ourselves and those close to us about the things that make believing difficult. I don't know what it is for you. It could be, could be intellectual challenges. How can I know that God is real? How can I know that the Bible is trustworthy? How can I know that this God is the right God? Is the historical evidence about Jesus and his resurrection really reliable? Those are all fair questions. And there are answers available for the honest, humble, truth-seeking skeptic legitimate intellectual challenges to faith. But some doubts arise from personal experience. It can be very hard to believe in God or that he's good or that there's anything good in the world when we have suffered so much personally, either by circumstance or at the hands of others. Or one can struggle to believe or hope because they have watched people close to them suffer terribly and unfairly. That is a very real challenge to faith. And if left untreated, those kinds of doubts are dangerous. Can't ignore them. We shouldn't. Don't ignore your stubborn doubts. Do not ignore them. Heading number two, point number two. After our stubborn doubts, we get Christ's gentle response. Christ's gentle response. Verse 26. Eight days later. (laughs) Okay. We're now on car show Sunday, if they had a car show in the ancient Near East. Car show Sunday. It is a week later, okay? Let that sink in for a minute. A whole week has gone by, and Thomas has been stubbornly doubting the whole time. We can assume throughout this week, the other disciples have been trying to convince him, but he won't have any of it. 
He's dug his heels in, and it appears the risen Jesus also had other business to attend to. He has been letting Thomas stew in his doubts for a week until this next Sunday. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, so this sounds familiar. Same thing happens here. Although the doors were locked, they're hiding from those who were trying to persecute them. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Plenty of readers think that Jesus floated through the door like a ghost, but the text doesn't say that. And we know he's flesh and bone. He's not a spirit. He's a real man. He could have unlocked and opened the doors without a key. He could have like kicked the doors open like some action movie from the 90s. He could have just somehow appeared in the room. We don't know. What we do know is it was surprising. He shouldn't have been able to get in, but he did. That, that's the point. And he speaks the same phrase to the disciples that he did when he appeared to them the week before. Peace be with you. A gentle word for a shocking moment. Now that he has their attention, Jesus does the one thing that he came there to do. Here's that Jesus does nothing else in this appearance except address Thomas and his doubts. This is why he has appeared to them now. Verse 27. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I would have expected Jesus to say to Thomas what Darth Vader said to Admiral Mahdi in Star Wars A New Hope. Yeah, I'm doing this. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Just let you have that one. Fortunately, for Thomas and for us, Jesus isn't anything like Darth Vader. And if you're looking for an inspiring quote for your Instagram or Twitter this Easter Sunday, take that. Jesus isn't anything like Darth Vader. I'm sure your followers will be delighted. Jesus is so gentle with Thomas. So gentle, even though Thomas has refused to believe the report of Jesus' other messengers. Jesus doesn't verbally bash him. He doesn't deride him or shame him in front of the other disciples. Why didn't you listen to them? I appeared to them and told them to go tell everyone that I was alive again, and you wouldn't listen, you dumbo. No. He mercifully makes eye contact with Thomas and invites him to see the very proof that Thomas had demanded just a week ago. Look at my wounds. Touch them. It's really, it's really me. It's not my stunt double or my doppelganger. It's really me. I died. I died. Look at the wounds. I died. But behold, I'm alive again. Just like I said I would be. What do we learn about Jesus from this moment. Oh, sweet. 
sweet and enduring truth. Jesus has mercy on those who doubt. That's John 20, 24 through 31. That's the right title, not Doubting Thomas. Jesus has mercy on those who doubt. There's, there's a, a passage in a small book near the end of the Bible called Jude where the author instructs Christians to have mercy on those who doubt. Be gentle and kind with those whose faith is wavering. That's the idea. And that is a wonderful summary of how Jesus deals with doubters. Christ has mercy on those who doubt. He's not harsh or cruel. He's not tapping his foot impatiently. No, he gently and clearly reveals himself to doubters and invites us to believe. If you feel captured by doubt this morning, trapped in doubt this morning, then the first thing you need to know is, is not information. No, the first thing you need to know is the heart of the Savior for you. If you are weighed down by doubt, He is full of mercy and compassion and patience for you. He wants to deal with you considerately and kindly and gently. Now, He, he wants you to believe in Him. He doesn't want to leave you in your doubt. He wants you to trust Him for salvation and everything else. His word to Thomas is His word to you and I. Don't disbelieve, but believe. It's a command, but also a sweet invitation. Don't live in doubt any longer. Entrust yourself to me, he says. Don't stuff your doubts deep down where nobody else can see them. Bring them to me and let me transform them into faith and hope and love. Doubt will lead you down the path of despair, but I will lead you on the path of faith and hope and love. Only Jesus can do that. Only a living Savior can do that. And he is inviting everyone here this morning to bring all of our doubts to him. He's risen from the dead on Easter Sunday to give us all life through faith. Don't disbelieve any longer, he says, but believe. Take him up on his invitation. He is gentle with those who doubt. Heading number three, point number three. After Christ's gentle response, our astonished faith. Our astonished faith. Christ's invitation to Thomas has an immediate effect. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Immediately his doubts disappear. Christ revealed himself physically and bodily to Thomas. And what could Thomas do but believe? <coughs> his five-word confession of faith here is a clear and accurate statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord the supernatural ruler of all. And he is God, the one true God who could never die. Thomas is astonished. Astonished, perhaps, maybe for a moment, a bit embarrassed that he had doubted at all. But I think those feelings left quickly as his heart, his iron-hard heart, was flooded with gratitude and relief and comfort and hope. He's so shocked 
we don't have any other words from him. We don't even know if he actually touched the wounds. Doesn't say. But we do need to pay attention to the wounds for a moment. The wounds are very important, even though the whole interchange is kind of gross. Touch my wounds. It's a little weird, but the wounds are very important. It's significant that that's the proof that Thomas asked for, and that's the proof offered by Christ. A.W. Pink, commenting on this, so helpfully observed. When we have gone astray, he wrote, what is it that recalls us? Not occupation with the intricacies of prophecy or the finer points of doctrine, important and valuable as these are in their place. It's not occupation with that, but the great foundation truth of the atonement. That's what recalls us. It was, he writes, it was the sight of the Savior's wounds which scattered all of Thomas's doubts, overcame his self-will, and brought him to the feet of Christ as an adoring worshiper. So it is with us. Only a revelation of the crucified and risen Christ can really dispel our doubts. The wounds, they tell us of Good Friday— Christ sweating drops of blood in the garden. Christ completely innocent yet wrongly accused. Christ spat upon, mocked, and beaten. Christ hanging upon the cursed cross in the place of sinners. Those wounds tell of his great love for sinners and the joy that drove him to ransom us from death and judgment. If we want to know the lengths Christ would go to have mercy on those who doubt, he'd go all the way to the cross. And it is astonishing that he would do that for me. Unworthy as I am. It is astonishing that he would do that for you. Faith in Christ is an astonished faith. It's just another way to say the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, it's astonished faith. Faith in Christ says, I can't believe that he would do that for me, but I believe that he did. Christ will bear those wounds forever. The body that Thomas and the disciples saw is the body that you and I will one day see as well. The marks of his suffering will always be visible to us, reminding us that he is, before he's the risen Lord, he is the lamb for sinners slain. But had he not risen from the dead, his suffering would have been for nothing. That's why he has to be revealed as the crucified and risen Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that if he isn't raised, our faith is dead in the water. But he is raised. Some 500 plus people saw him. It's verifiable. This is no mere opinion, but a historical fact that Jesus is alive. We are speaking not just a theological truth, but a historical fact. He is alive. And his disciples, Thomas included now, knew this beyond a shadow of a doubt and were tasked by him to share this news with the whole world so that the rest of us could believe too and that we could be here on this Sunday celebrating. We must believe in Jesus, but not just any Jesus. 
we must believe in Jesus as he really is, crucified in the place of sinners and raised by God's power. That is who Christ revealed himself to be to his original disciples. It's who he's revealing himself to be to us as well. Not just a good teacher or miracle worker or do-gooder. He is the Savior who saves by dying and then defeats death by rising from the grave. You and I may wonder how faith in Christ works exactly. And faith is a bit like a sixth sense, right? It's kind of like describing faith to somebody is like, like describing what smell is like to somebody who has no sense of smell. It's like a sixth sense. That's why it's always a little difficult to put our finger on. But this short interchange between Jesus and Thomas really is a fitting illustration for how it works. Here's how it works. Christ reveals himself first. That's the first step of faith. First step of faith has nothing to do with us. First step of faith is Christ revealing himself. He reveals himself to Thomas, and then Thomas responds by believing in him. Christ reveals himself to us. We respond by believing in him. Christ initiates and calls. We respond with, uh, theologian John Murray called it, whole-souled commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. That's what faith is, a whole-souled commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. Now, we don't need to see Jesus like Thomas and the disciples did to believe in him. You know the saying, seeing is believing. Jesus takes issue with that phrase. Verse 29 of our passage, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. A beatitude for those of us who didn't get to see Jesus like the original disciples did. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Seeing isn't believing. Believing is believing. <laughs> okay. And Christ has offered us enough evidence to believe. At some point, we all have to stop and say, We've learned enough. Will we respond to him with more stubborn doubt? Or will we respond with an astonished and grateful faith like Thomas? For if we respond with faith, the reward is unbelievable. And that's our final point. We doubt, Jesus responds to our doubts. We believe, then what happens? Point number four, heading number four, Christ's gift of life. Christ's gift of life. Verses 30 and 31, translator heading is the purpose of this book. We are treated to a summary statement by this book's author, John. He tells us why he wrote what he wrote. He's, he's a biased historian, like every other historian, and he knows it. And he puts his bias out there in plain sight. Verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I didn't tell you everything he did. No historian does. They provide the details they need to make their point. But why did John include these details? Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, believing isn't the end, by believing, you may have life in his name. On Easter Sunday, the offer of faith in Jesus Christ is everlasting life. Those who've been around our church these last few weeks have been forced to face death quite a bit, and as painful as that has been, it it makes Jesus' offer here so much more significant. We have felt it. Death threatens to rob life of its meaning. If we're going to die, what's the point? Death is our greatest enemy, but Jesus' offer is this. If you believe that on the cross I died the death, you should have died on account of your sins. If you believe that I rose from the dead, defeating death, and now live forevermore. If you believe that all who trust in me will never be put to shame and will triumph over every enemy, death included. If you believe that, everlasting life is yours. That's not just a good idea to help make you a better person until you die. If you believe this, you will never truly die. That's the offer. You may close your eyes for a time, but your spirit will be with the Lord, and one day you will be reunited with your body never to die again. You'll live forever like Jesus. You will live forever with Jesus in uninterrupted joy. That's the offer on Easter. That's the offer of the crucified and risen Savior of the world. That's the offer today to doubters and skeptics and cynics. How good is that? You don't have to do anything. (laughs) You don't have to earn anything. You just have to believe in your heart and say, Lord, I gladly receive you as Savior. I gladly receive your offer of forgiveness and peace and life. That simple faith is all that's required. If you're a Christian here this morning, what could we do now but rejoice in the indestructible life that Christ has won for us on Easter Sunday? And let that rejoicing drown out our doubts. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to hear Jesus say it to you one more time. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in particular for those who do feel the the sting of doubt this morning, whose whose vision of, of the bright rays of hope is clouded by dark clouds of doubt and disbelief. I pray that the invitation of Jesus would ring in their souls and that they, like Thomas, would today cry out in their hearts, my Lord and my God. 
and that they would no longer disbelieve, but believe in the one who died and rose again and lives forevermore to save us from sin and death. Awaken new life. Awaken those who today are dead with doubt into everlasting life through faith in you. For my brothers and sisters here who do believe, who, who, have, who have sung with full hearts the truths that we've been singing already this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would increase their joy in Jesus Christ. And that as they wrestle honestly with their doubts, that you would walk alongside them and strengthen them as life hurts them. I pray that you would heal them and help them along the way. And that in in that way, they could sense again that their Savior is no dead Savior, but a living Savior who is now leading them to a life that will be better than we could have imagined. Give us all faith in the risen Savior today, we ask. In his name, amen.